welcome to Systematically, your weekly theology podcast. I'm John Heaps, and today I'm talking to you from uh, a walk-in closet in my house in Austin, Texas, because the semester is over and I had to move out of my office. So uh, you can hear my shirts hanging in the background. I'm here with Ryan Hemmer. Hey, Ryan. Hey, John. And I'm here with Robin Beret. Hey, Robin. Hey, I'm not in a closet, just in case you were wondering. <laughs> no, uh, we do this by video podcast, so it's we. Uh, mine is easily the worst frame. I've we've got a fluorescent light above me. Uh, I was telling Ryan earlier. I feel like I uh, I look the way you look in the airplane uh, bathroom mirror, which is the worst you will ever look. Um, but no, Robin has lovely uh, daylight streaming in. Ryan's backed by his bookshelves. He looks mm-hmm. uh, downright professorial. I actually have the like touched by an angel thing going on. Oh, you, you know, do, like it, yeah, right. Just because of the way the pot lights are or that, the track lights. So in she's this room, got. That, yeah, yeah. She, know, she's at the end of touched by an angel, like when the like when the when it's revealed. The, the like weird like forty five year old man with flowing hair, or the older black woman, or there's a third angel, I think, and they just there's like an Irish angel, yeah. I'm an angel, and then like their hair starts glowing. That's what I've got going on. Is Roma Downey? Is that the Irish angel? I remember that name for some reason. How many of our listeners, all 12 of them, do you think watched Touched by an Angel or were like two years old when that show was on? Well, it seems to me that like if you... If you're our age, it's just like you soaked it up somewhere. Yeah, and even even maybe the next five to ten years of people, uh-huh. if you were ever homesick from school, like if you had a robust immune system, which I can't, uh, I can't, uh, account for myself, but um, and you were at school every day of the school year, then maybe you didn't see it. But uh, if air you saw daytime TV, it had it to was be in daytime that. syndication. I believe so. Yeah, man. Wow. Um, on like ABC Family or whatever. Um, I like because it's not like my parents watched. Like I have no idea how I ended up seeing random episodes. <laughs> just somewhere back there in my yeah. So no, it's the the Along look with is Doctor Quinn, Medicine Woman. Absolutely. Um. And uh, and if you're a little older, uh, the Adventures of Hercules and Xena Warrior Princess, um, Kevin Sorbo and Lisa, Lucy Lawless, Lucy Lawless, Lisa yep. Lawless, Lucy. Um, no, but the look from Touched by an Angel, if you've never seen it, is uh, to indicate that it's being revealed to whoever they've been helping that they are in fact angels. It's a kind of orangey, warm glow spotlight at the, on the top of their head. To approximate a halo or something, which I don't know who their their theology consultant was on the show if they had one, but that's like kind of a weird thing. Um, also, hold on, I just want to pause. The guy who was Hercules, he's the same guy who's in God's Not Dead, right? Correct. Yes. Wow, but this world is just such a beautiful place, guys. Wait, let's slow down. Did you did you see God's Not Dead? Um. Yeah. Obviously. I couldn't. No, I knew I couldn't tolerate it. Also, the um, good Christian fun episode about God's Not Dead it has the most amazing intro I've really ever heard to a podcast. Oh, okay. Ever. So there's a shout out to. And their, their God's Not Dead 2 podcast has just come out, but I haven't watched it yet. Oh, they made a sequel, didn't they? And it was, um, I don't know. shown at youth groups everywhere. 10,000 times worse. The first one, at least was a relatively plausible yeah ish um plot line the second one wasn't Anyways. i recall but the plot line of the first one is like 
you'll fail this class if you don't sign a piece of paper that says there's no God, right? That's yeah. like the, the, that's the, the crisis or whatever. Um, the character obstacle. Yeah. This, this insane, like, uh, evangelical fever dream about what college classrooms are like is endlessly entertaining to me. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> although and- to, to be fair, my brother's crotchety old, like, philosophy 1000 professor basically used his class as a grandstand to rail against all religion for being like endlessly hypocritical. Well, and that's, and that's just because philosophy majors become philosophy professors. Um, and philosophy majors are the absolute worst. Uh, I say as a philosophy major, um, just terrible, terrible people. Don't, don't let your kids do it folks. Um, most most professors, though, of course, live in um, wide-eyed fear of their students. Correct. Because um, <laughs> that's how the power dynamics actually work in a college right. classroom. <laughs> well, and, and you know, uh, and, and, and it, at first you have the sort of naive, uh, weak fear of their, um, uh, of their evals. But then you get the truly, you get the truly advanced fear of their rich donor parents talking to someone on the board. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's the true mm-hmm. fear. Um, and then there's a, there's an asterisk and there's an exception carved out for Texas, which is uh, you have to fear that they're con- they have concealed carried a handgun into your classroom or your office hours. Um, yep. That's the galaxy brain professor fear. Um, so, yeah. Anyways, I, so, I, I mean, like the thing is that it's not dead. God's not dead, and this, you know, that, that a no, philosophy prof alive. would say that, you know, is at least plausible. But then as a student, like, that's, like, the easiest appeal in the world. If you got failed because, like, oh, yeah. because how would his syllabus have <laughs> passed muster in the department if the rubric was, if my students believe in God, I'm going to give them an F. Right. If it's not in the syllabus, you can't fail a student for it, and it would be the easiest appeal in the world. And that's how the story should have gone down. That would have been amazing, like, actually. Um, hey, I'm not <laughs> in the dean's do office, this, and um, I'm appealing my grade. Yeah. Oh, can you can you imagine the uh, the Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson like uh, crusade that would start if something like that actually happened at some college you've never heard of in the oh middle gosh. of nowhere? The Koch brothers would pay three writers at the Atlantic <laughs> to write nine articles about it. <laughs> Anyways, that one's at least plausible. The, the second one basically involves a teacher who, meant, who quotes the Bible in class. She, I don't think she even makes a profession of faith. She just quotes the Bible, which like, is actually completely legit as a piece of historical literature. And then ends up getting like, a parent gets mad and then the school board throws her under the bus and it goes to court and they decide the best way to get her off the hook is to prove the existence of God in court. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't. Uh, that's. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know this. I hadn't. I hadn't gone on IMDb and looked at the plot summary. I mean, you should read the Wikipedia plot summary like I did. I mostly just watched the trailer, like, especially <laughs> the first one. Like, I watched that trailer, like, at least once a month, guys. Like, it's just. Wow. You have so, a high tolerance. So, within, so in the litigation, like, what's, what's, the, uh, what's the argument that secures the verdict? 
Is it and is it civil or criminal court? <laughs> I mean, it's basically it's really actually just Lee Strobel the movie version. <laughs> um, okay, I, so I haven't seen. It's actually, Godzilla. a FISA court, and they just put a wiretap oh, wow. in heaven, and that's what I thought. <laughs> that's right. They use um, God's metadata. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, basically. I um that was just a little a little we threw that in just in case Orrin Kerr is listening. Yep. Right. Basically, I don't know, they call in like an expert witness who argues that like an expert witness. Yeah, he's a he's an apologist. He's like yeah. I'm pretty sure he just is Lee Strobel. He has then, he has a blog. He's an expert. Yeah. Actually, I'm pretty sure it's just like this guy is essentially Lee Strobel, but just like under a pseudonym. Right. And he basically somehow argues that like the gospel can't be a conspiracy because none of the apostles ever retracted their accounts of seeing Jesus rise from the dead. Um, even in the face of persecution and death, ergo, it is true. So. Uh, strong. That's a strong argument. I think it's a lot stronger than like Aquinas's proof of God. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I hope that, uh, I hope Ryan's that- giving me the death eyes. <laughs> Uh, as a, as a, as something of a Thomas to Jason, I'm uh, both morally and legally obligated to say they're not proofs; they're ways. <laughs> um, I'm not yeah. even sure. I and they tell you nothing about the gospel. Correct. Anyways, what's really exciting? I just have to let you all know is that I'm pretty sure there's a third one. Oh, thank God. Either coming out or about to That's come out. proof there's a God. Right? Yeah. Because it comes it's in a Trinity. Trinity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. The Vestigia Trinitatis as <laughs> Kevin Sorbo movie. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, that's um, right. If we need to do an episode, Ryan, about. Uh, Trinitarian analogies, because Ryan just rolled his eyes so hard, because um, no one understands. No one, nobody gets it. Just well, there's there's three of them, so they it's takes, like Trinity. They got so many takes. takes, all the takes. Um, yeah. So, Robin, you wanted to talk about a thing, uh, and it seemed appropriate about a week ago. My statistically ordered article uh, went up online with theological studies so if you listen to that episode i think it's like episode four or something and you want to read the article that i was talking about uh you can go on to theological studies website and it'll take you to the sage publication thing and if you have institutional access you can uh get it if you're desperate desperate to read it um and you don't have institutional access uh send the show an email systematically podcast at gmail.com uh and i can maybe see about um getting you some access to that uh, so, but in light of that, uh, Robin wanted to talk sort of in more wide ranging terms and, um, more, uh, explicitly ethical terms about the relationship between biology and culture. So Robin, I'm going to let you sort of frame what you were, what you were thinking on that front. Sounds good. Well, I think I was starting with, um, kind of in my own work looking at childhood and stuff. And one of the first questions that comes out often is like, well, what is childhood and who are children? And, um, which those two terms are kind of overlapping, but not necessarily the same because in general children is like 
a group of people or um, a child or children, kind of who is that tends to, yeah, refer to a group of people who meet certain criteria or whatever. And then there's childhood, which is um, more like, uh, how would you say it? Hmm. Like a, like a state? Yeah. Um, sorry guys. I, uh, a little bit, my brain's a little bit out. I've, I've got the baby by myself for two weeks. I'm a little slow in the brain department. And the baby from the, from the sound of our pre-show discussion is not loving the idea of laying down to go to sleep for things. No, she loves going to bed at night, but she hates napping. Mm. So, um, anyways, but like, you know, child or children is basically like a human being of a certain age or developmental stage. Right. So, not adult and not adolescent, but you know, in this certain development stage. But childhood is more like a particular cultural and social phenomenon, right? A period of life, you know, period in the human life. Um, something that is like, at least in our culture, generally understood as being qualitatively different than adulthood. So, like, so just just to maybe clarify by contrast. So, so, um, so when people say, you know, people who have um, parents who are really dysfunctional or something uh or or addicts or something will sometimes say you know i didn't really get to have a childhood yeah is that sort of what we're talking about right that's sort of basically and on kind of on a larger scale like obviously there have been children all through history like there's like there's been there's always been two-year-olds there's always been four-year-olds but um historians generally argue about like does does every culture have a childhood specifically and um it's like when Arias makes the claim that no one before the, you know, that the Victorians invented childhood and there was no such thing as childhood before that in Western culture, which has generally been rejected, his claim. But um, it's basically the claim that childhood is a protected cultural and social stage, like that has its own rules, its own cultural activities, its own possessions, is a recent invention. Um, anyways, so I got thinking about just um that so what like a scholar of as one scholar of childhood actually in ancient israel puts it she talks about childhood being both biologically determined and culturally constructed and that got me thinking about how we think about like what it means for something to be both biologically determined and socially constructed and it seems to me that there's kind of at least two ways to think about, I would say three ways to think about this. And if you guys can think about more, then we can talk about that. But basically, so on the one hand, you have kind of the idea that you have the bio- biology and that's the reality, right? So there's a biological determinism and that basically all the lives of all children are like biologically carry out in the same way that basically all children develop according to the same kind of pattern or whatever. And that that biology is the reality and then social and then you have social construction which is something that um is added on to this basis of biology and it's largely artificial essentially then you have the view i think that basically biology is kind of the foundational reality and then social construction grows out of that or is an interpretation of the biological reality. So it doesn't, so that there's a stronger connection between the biology 
biology and kind of the cultural construction. Um, but kind of it's still biology. It's still kind of a one-way street from the reality of biology to this kind of abstracted social construction. And then I think the third option is that you actually have kind of a, a mutually informing thing where your cultural constructions actually influence the biological development of children and vice versa. And then the biological reality of children influences your social construction. Like, I mean, one of the reasons that childhood is kind of having separate possessions and a separate activity and whatever comes about is because you have these little tiny humans who smear poop on the wall and cry and learn how to talk with like, you know, entirely A sounds. <laughs> Tristan's really into ba, 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 ba these days. Um, yeah. So that's kind of, um, that's where I've begun my thought. And I haven't really worked this through. And then where I want to go with this a little bit is thinking about, well, what does that mean for moral development? Because we often think of children's moral development as essentially progressing along the same way as like the rest of their intellectual development, um, which has a lot to do with kind of their biological capacities and that sort of stuff. But then I was thinking about, I wanted to kind of think about well, what's the relationship first between this kind of biological, you know, um, this bio, uh, biologically determined and culturally constructed nature? And what then does that have to do? We talk about the moral development. Does moral development just kind of go again in kind of one direction? Or actually is how we understand morality in a cultural sense actually influence the, um, the abilities of a child or the, the development of a child? Hmm. Interesting. So, <clears throat> uh, you know, one of the, uh, it seems to me you could add a kind of further wrinkle to it as well, which is that you could, um, you could have sort of three A and three B. So you could have three A, which would be, uh, where the biological and the cultural have a kind of symmetrical influence on each other. Um, where, where they're sort of equally potent, um, forces in the, the development of, of children or in some, some element of human life, affectivity, something that comes to mind. But uh, you could also, it seems to me, conceive of 3B where there's some form of asymmetry in the causal force, right? Where, um, yeah, it runs both directions, true, but one is sort of more strongly determining than the other or more extensively determining than the other. And, Right? There's like a lot of different like modes and valences to the way you could hash out the causal relationships there. Um, and there's, a, you know, I, I've, I've skimmed, I've sort of skimmed the very surface of it, but there's a whole big body of literature fighting about these, these questions. Mm. Yeah. And there's, uh -oh. there's a, there's a whole argument right now with an evolutionary theory about this too. Yeah. How does that go? So basically, um, there's an argument between essentially what is essentially classic Darwinian evolution, which everyone is pretty much should be familiar with, right? Like you have a genotype phenotype relationship. It's statistically correlated and you pass on like, you know, you pass on your genes and those genes get expressed in kind of a statistically governed way. And um, what really changes a species is simply this, like, you know, you have a genome, you have random mutation, you pass on those mutations. Some of those mutations are better or worse for 
the environment, like the environment you're living in, and then you get gradual change. But basically, there's a theory that's emerged that's called extended evolutionary synthesis. And what that basically claims is that, well, kind of standard Darwinian evolution. Now, I mean, when people talk about kind of standard Darwinian, no one really believes in Dar standard Darwinian evolution anymore um, because you have things like epigenetics. So you have kind of con biological and statistically governed controls over where and when genes get expressed, just not which genes you have. So like, it, you know, it is more complicated. But anyways, extended evolutionary synthesis basically says, well, the kind of standard model works well for bacteria, like for basically non-social creatures. But when you're talking about social creatures, instead of having a single level and unilinear causation, that gets replaced with multi-level and reciprocal causation. So you can talk about non-genetic inheritance, developmental bias, niche construction, genomic evolution, and that sort of stuff. So um, like the changes and the goals that happen aren't just related to gene propagation. So um, yeah, it does, there's not kind of a one-way street, but instead the, synth, like the synthesis assumes a dialectical relationship between the participating components um, in the relationship of populations to the environment, and then also kind of in how you get general, like heritable phenotypic architecture. So essentially like, um, there's a whole bunch of inputs that aren't directly coming from the genome. And it's not just statistics that kind of governs how they're going to be expressed, but instead like the environment um, uh, affects that. And also um, when you're talking about social beings then your social um, realities are actually going to influence essentially your um, the expression of certain genes. So you're going to have developmental bias. Um, so you can talk about then the ways like, so someone like Jesus, who, as far as we know, like didn't have children, actually had a huge, like, so, you know, had a huge impact on the evolutionary development of humans, especially in the Western world, because his teachings ended up governing like eating practices, sexual practices, um, like where people lived, how they organized their lives around day and night, like all those sorts of things um, basically play a role. So, you know, yeah. and, so behavior, like behavior and culture, right, is, aren't just passively exposed to natural selection, but basically actively involved in forming the environments which then select for certain things, which then, and so on and so forth, basically. Right. And that was what sort of was going to be the next, the next thing I wanted to, to sort of push towards is, is meaning the sort of the, the function uh, that, that human beings live in a world mediating constituted by meaning plays in this, right? Yeah. Now, <clears throat> when you, uh, one of the, the really useful tools from Lonergan that I'm always trotting out is the idea of an abstractive viewpoint. Um, and an abstractive viewpoint is just essentially the, the sort of angle you take on a set of data that's set by the question that you're trying to answer. Um, and so if you're, what you're trying to figure out is, uh, ha, pertains to the biology of organisms. Um, why, why, do they, uh, why do they live in the way that they are living? Um, 
then yeah, you're, you're going to consider culture and sociality and the sort of field of meaning in terms of its causal efficacy and its effects uh, on um, that living, right? And so that the, you're, so you're going to have this, you know the teachings of Jesus making this uh, and, and the and the ongoing interpretation of the teachings of Jesus uh, having this big effect on the ways in which the human organism lives and also the way in which all the uh, organisms that interact with human beings live, and so on. Um, on the other hand, when you ask about something like childhood and i like childhood in particular is an interesting one you are going to have to deal with uh, a shift in abstractive viewpoint right um, and that's going to be the thing that's tricky when you ask about the relationship between biology and culture is you're asking about the intersection of the products of two different abstractive viewpoints right uh one that asks about the the living of organisms and another asks that asks about um the, the meanings and values generated and pursued by human beings. And so then it's, um, then it becomes just methodologically speaking, uh, a question of hashing out. Okay. So, so if we want to ask about the relationship of biology and culture, according to which abstractive viewpoint, like what, so now we have the sort of the data, uh, in, in this case, the data are the results of these two different sort of fields of inquiry. Um, what, what question are we asking of them? Um, which, you know, what sort of tack are we taking as we approach them? Are we interested in, um, are, are we interested in the intersection of these things insofar as they uh, pertain to the general biologicalness of human beings? Or are we approaching them in terms of the specific humanness of human beings? Um, and I'm, I, I take it as a sort of, um, basic fact that the humanness of human beings involves the mediation and constitution of our world by, uh, by meaning. Um, but maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's assuming too much. Maybe I'm moving too fast in that, but that seems to me the sort of, that the, the question you have to ask very quickly is a methodological question. So what, you know, how are we concerned about these two sort of data sets? I don't know, Ryan, what, what do you, what do you think about that as you sort of hear us bat the ball back and forth, forth on that question? Yeah, I mean, because you have an interplay between distinct abstractive viewpoints, the thing that you're not going to have is a kind of um, a kind of third viewpoint that's going to um, resolve the ambiguities from one and another in some sort of synthesis. That you're you're really just going to have to do the methodological work of um, maintaining clarity about the questions that you're asking and acknowledging when you switch. Uh, the question set, even if the data set remain, remains the same. Um, and so, you know, it's just very easy uh, to, to not do that methodical work or not maintain that methodical distinction in the actual course of, of investigation because the questions arise largely spontaneously and might, might be pursued one after another within a kind of order, but unless that order is reflected upon, um, the sort of methodical exigence that's being followed is not is not going to be explicit, and so isn't really going to exert a kind of control over the inquiry itself. And um, in the spontaneity of of experience and observation, you have a unitary data set. Exactly. Right? Yep. You know, um, you're asking about what is at the level of data, sort of one 
a sort of a, a, a unitary aggregate. And so you can you can fall into uh, a, a kind of myopia that Robin was talking about earlier in terms of um, uh, I, either a kind of biological determinism or a, or a kind of um, cultural determinism, which are basically effects of failing to be attentive to the the ways in which in which these are distinct inquiries into the same set of observed phenomena, and so. Um, are going to relate to one another differently depending upon um, the method of inquiry employed, and so there, you're, you know you're going to find a kind of like residual classicist Aristotelianism that's going to want to treat of um, these kinds of lower manifolds as so much just like matter awaiting um, the form of human being, right? So. Um, all of that biological stuff is going to be the kind of like uh, material substrate for the form of social animal or whatever. But um, but that's asking a dis- different kind of question about what a human being is than a biologist, at least a modern biologist, is going to be asking of the data of biology. But what the biologist still is after when investigating the phenomena of human living is the form of human being. So it's, it's not that the, invest, that the investigation in biology is not formal or that it's not after some kind of formal intelligibility imminent to um, the data as examined under the canons of empirical science, um, but that it's asking under, about that form in a very particular way. Right? And so, um, Biology wants to know the the eidos the same way that philosophy or theology does, but it's asking different questions and so intending um, a kind of formality that's quite distinct, though not separate from the formality sought under theological anthropology or a, a kind of philosophical ontology. And so um, methodical control uh, and clarity about abstractive viewpoint is the only way you're going to see those different formalities as as not competitive with one another, but but uh, relating and interrelating with to one another according to um, the the control of inquiry itself. Well, and, and and for what it's worth, this is the same problem that besets the arguments about nature and grace. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Or the natural and the supernatural is. Um, it's not, yeah, it's, 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 uh, they are, they are distinguished according to an abstractive viewpoint and in the concrete are a part of a unitary data set. Um, yep. and so, yeah, and if you can't, uh, if you can't, if you can't figure out that, that, um, there's a kind of line of reference termed nature to borrow Lonergan's words, um, you're, you're going to lose the thread that what nature is is an answer to a question. Um, to, and to a particular kind of a particular kind of uh, angle on the data set set out by that question. But I think what Robin, what you uh, what you highlighted when you were talking about, um, I can't remember the term you you called the sort of newer evolutionary model. Extended. It's the extended evolutionary. Synthesis. Extended evolutionary. Okay. Uh, it seems to be the the really insightful thing about that is that it. Um, 
it lays bare, at least from one abstractive viewpoint, the nature of the interactions between um, the results of these different inquiries. And so it, 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 it doesn't allow you to put up a kind of um, wall of separation between um, modes of inquiry into the causes and effects that, uh, that animate and organize biological phenomena um, and neither does it allow you to um, neatly bracket those phenomena off from investigations of uh, social and cultural situations um, that that arise dynamically in the course of of an evolutionary history. Right. Yeah. So, like the entire preoccupation with niche construction, like in that theory, for example, is about the interface of ecology, behavior, and culture. So that, you know, we're, we're not just passively exposed to, um, to evolution, but we actively shape it. Um, sure. For example. <laughs> Dogs found that out. <laughs> sure did. Um, so, 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 then, so then what, so I, so I guess the thing I'm, I'm driving at with all this is, so what question are we asking? Um, what are we, what's the... Um, what's the abstractive viewpoint we're taking, right? So you, so, you, so you sort of indicated that moral development was part of the thing you were concerned about, right? Yeah, so thinking about, well, so we tend to think about child development as essentially a biological phenomenon, right? And then like there's, it just kind of marches on and then we have you know, the biology marches along and then we kind of construct our meaning around children in certain ways by, by watching children, how they grow. And I think when we think about moral development, essentially some of that ends up being sort of the same, especially because morality is often characterized primarily by like rational inquiry and kind of rational grasp. Right, especially under like a Kantian model, but I, I, under kind of a consequentialist model as well. So, um, you basically have kind of the kind of moral realities or potentialities of a child kind of march along, and then we kind of abstract or impose kind of morality onto those abilities. And what I was thinking, or just beginning the question of, well, if we see this way where so like biology and kind of cultural construction have this kind of relationship, which we've kind of talked about, well, what does that mean about morality? Can you talk about it in kind of, um, you know, kind of a dynamism of children participating in moral perception of moral reasoning and moral discernment? And basically that, um, that it develops as a child develops biologically, but also um, your social circumstances kind of or cultural circumstances kind of are more or less enabling of kind of moral development or moral flourishing. And that also not only do we like talk about making moral decisions for children or by children, or whatever, but we actually kind of our entire moral viewpoint actually changes or affects the, the moral development of children, which we think of as kind of a primarily biological phenomenon or relying on these biological things and i haven't really thought this through um so i mean one place to start is that culture provides the predominating body of 
object, objects of moral decision-making for children. Um, and, and by moral decision-making, I don't mean to drag it back into this kind of rationalistic version, right? Because um, my kids make moral decisions all the time. They just, they aren't, they aren't doing that according to some kind of um, logical ideal or something, right? Um, and so, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So the, the, there's a very obvious influence we can get into maybe less obvious ones, but the more obvious influence is that uh, the things about which children are having to develop in their moral uh, effectiveness are cultural, right? The, the, they, they, (laughs) for for the most part, right, aren't having to make decisions about um, quote unquote natural objects, right? Their, their whole world is, is constituted by, by artificial entities. Um, and artificial here is not meant in any kind of pejorative sense. It's just, um, a kind of matter of fact that they, uh, that, you know, <laughs> that they aren't, they aren't surrounded by pine cones. They've got toys and somebody made those toys. Um, I often wish somebody had made them quieter, but here we are. Um, so, so that seems to me one part, right? Which is that the, the, in, in the, and I'm, uh, you know, his work is, uh, rightly criticized for the sort of narrowness of its, of, of the, certainly the data set we were joking about before, um, you know, N of, N of 11 randomly selected from the parlor in his home. Um, but, uh, but nonetheless, I, I think the sort of formal or mathematical element of his thinking about development as adaptation, as um, both a kind of effort to, to engage and impose but also the resistance of the, the objects of engagement upon the, the modes of engagement. Um, so that there's a, the example I use all the time is, is grasp. Um, right. And so when you, when you take your, your 18 month old or whatever to the well visit, the doctor lays pennies or whatever out on the, on the examining table and sees if the kid can pick them up with a pincer grasp because they're checking to see how that coordination of those motor operations is coming along. But as a child develops, they develop, the coordination of motor operations in their grasping reflex uh, to hold all kinds of things, pencils, forks, eventually steering wheels. You know, the weirdly unnatural one we do in our culture is uh, learning how to throw a football. Um, That's like a strange set of coordinating motor skills to throw an American football. It's a weird shape. You have to move your arm in a weird way. Um, And like, you know, the, 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 what what more artificial object is there than an American football? I mean, it's just strange. I, I, I want back all of the, the tens of minutes I've spent in my life chasing an errant American football. Um, it bounces wrong. I obviously have a beef here with the, uh, with the American football. But um, the, the point is, is that uh, it seems to me that on the objective side, culture is going to have the bigger... Um, the bigger role because the objects are themselves going to be constituted by the meanings and values that make up their culture. Um, go ahead. All right. The, well, I mean the, at least in PHA in terms, right. There's still a, within the adaptive structure, there's still a, a reciprocity between the assimilative and, and the accommodative. Right. So, um, while on the one hand, your kind of present state of ooh, India, <laughs> <All right, guys. sighs> your, your kind of present state of uh, 
oh, I don't know what good, a good term for it, but you know, basically your your moral prehensile skills yeah. uh, are going to have a kind of delimiting factor based on their present stage of development. Um, that you're going to have a relatively narrow set of moral options or or moral actions available to you because you haven't fully morally developed yet. Right. Um, and so the whole world, the whole cultural world at least, would seem to have to be uh, comprised solely of um, moral objects that can be grasped by the kinds of moral skills that you have. Um, and so you try to assimilate the whole world in terms of the same set of moral operations. So, and the and analogous to the way that, you know, my, well, she's much better at it now. When she was younger, my toddler would grasp everything as if it were, you know, a, a penny or a, a pen. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, had a hard time feeding herself because you have to grasp a fork or a spoon differently. Um, but be, exactly because she had trouble feeding herself, she, accommodated those skills to the specificity and the determination of this uh, uncooperative um, object of, of her prehensile action. And, you know, if we're going to run the prehensile metaphor all the way through, right, then um, part of moral development is going to be uh, the kind of moral failures that accumulate in our inability to treat of the diversity of moral situations in human life and even in childhood um, with the sort of same mo- structure of moral action. And, and so and you have to like change them. Yeah. Yeah. To, and, and to develop a kind of moral subtlety. Right? Yeah. 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 Um, and that, uh, yeah, I, I think that's um, right. That's part of what we, we do with kids. I, you know, I hear I was so, painfully unathletic this I, I this is not a part of my biography but I, I do sometimes hear people to go back to football talk about how important high school football was for them in their moral development mm. um and, and and there's a certain part of me that goes oh what a bunch of toxic masculinity horseshit but um but I think there's actually some truth in that that I think there's a that the that that in their context um it functioned as a kind of morality practice um, where there were immediate consequences for failures in terms of decision making and commitment and things like that, um, and 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 so they were able to develop um, a set of a set of what turned out to be sort of social and moral, um, you know, prehensile differentiations, um, and uh, and it, and it, it was important for them in their in their development. Um, and so, and so, yeah, so maybe the, maybe that's not such a bad metaphor to think about the stages of develop, of, of developmental ability, um, being provided a space in which they can make the requisite failures on the way to, to subtlety. I don't know. What do you think about that, Robin? Yeah, I think that sounds right. And I think that the way that we imagine making those decisions and and basically the and like whether or not children participate in them actually plays a huge role in their moral development so um basically just assuming that like we make all decisions for children because they don't have the rational ability and then just throwing them out there once they have the rational ability 
to make moral decisions. Well, um, we've had kind of no opportunity for moral development in that way. Uh, this is sort the, of right. what the right. metaphor then, or the analogy, um, even though it's a sort of old, tired uh, PJ analogy, uh, in the analogous to the way that, like, if if you never let your kids figure out through trial and error how to hold a, a spoon, but you just always feed feed them yourself, um, they kind of fail with respect to um, the development of their own self sufficiency for eating. Uh, if you're if you're never putting children in in or giving children the space to develop um, moral skills through their own negotiation of the kind of um, moral exigencies they encounter in their world, um, and but are always just saying, "Well, we'll we'll do that later." Um, right. What once they're once they're more fully possessed of of discursive reason or something like that. Right. Except that maybe then you actually affect their discursive, like their ability. Anyway, because I was thinking about like this, not even this, not necessarily the spoon example, but like languages, right? So, I mean, there comes a certain point where like when children are really young, like the sounds that they like, you know, like you can raise like a Caucasian baby like in China and they'll be able to make all of the sounds that you need for that language. But that plasticity, like you lose fairly early. And as an adult, you can learn other languages, but you can't really learn them. Well, first you don't learn them as a native does because you don't develop it like with that kind of child language development thing. But also biologically, there's just certain sounds your mouth can't make anymore. Like you can't, and I don't, I don't, I'm not. A I read an, I read a really interesting article once. I, could, I have to go dig it up, I guess. Um, that was about uh, emotional development. Mm-hmm. And the way in which there, there seem to be sort of three or four basic human emotions uh, that are really keyed to our um, our mammalian biology. And there's a, there's a whole sort of uh, theory about the vagus nerve and the sort of laminate evolutionary layers on the, the vagal development stuff and more complicated than we need to get into. But that's sort of, you know, sad, mad, scared, um, that kind of basic stuff. But when you go culture to culture, you start to find that cultures take the sort of basic uh, affective, we could maybe call them reflexes, um, and develop them and re-coordinate them into all these sort of different little subtle differentiations. And so you have um, nostalgia is apparently a, a kind of uniquely like North Atlantic um, uh, affectivity that just doesn't exist in some other places. Uh, and you can read, uh, you can read um, about sort of, different sort of Jap- specifically Japanese feelings that they are sort of untranslatable words for them and this kind of thing. Um, but the, but it seems to me, yeah, that, that part of what goes on there is a, a learning and a development of um, a kind of affective attunement, but also a kind of affective skill, right? The, the sort of um, coordination of all the, 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 the embodiment that goes into feeling a feeling in that kind of embodied way that you feel a feeling, but that is set and developed and, and nurtured um, in a cultural setting and through interaction with other people. Uh, you know, one of the other interesting uh, things that I wanted to talk about before we ran out of time was um, we have all this good information about how um, the executive functioning parts of the brain sort of close for remodeling in adolescence. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but there's, there's some work in, 
interpersonal neurobiology that suggests that part of what happens for teenagers is that through other parts of the brain that process the sort of subtle cues of embodied um, nonverbal communication, that, that there's the hypothesis is that teenagers will, will rely on the functioning prefrontal cortex of adults in their decision-making hmm. through that kind of embodied interpersonal attunement. Um, and so you get those kind of things about teenagers that, you know, they really need you to set boundaries and they need you to give structure. And, they need, and it's not just that they need it to like feel safe and okay, though that's part of it. They're, they, they need it in the sense that they're, they're sort of, um, they're sort of, <laughs> sort of in a biological way, um, patching in to your functional dis- capacity for decision-making because theirs is closed for remodeling. Um, and then one of my big worries about university life is we take young people in the, just right in the middle of that, right? 18, 19. And we say, go become an adult. And we send them to an institution where they have almost no interaction with people who are outside of this neural remodeling phase, right? We shove them into dorms full of other idiot 18 and 19 year olds. And we say, figure out how to become an adult. And like, even as, a, as an Aristotelian, that's a bad idea, right? <laughs> you need some mimesis and they've got no one to imitate. Right. Um, and, so, and so, you know, the, the ones, the smart ones latch onto professors and stuff. Um, it's like, the, oh, the, the very, um, you know, model of uh, mental health and stability. <laughs> High functioning. <laughs> um, and, but, but, you know, and, and so there's a, I think this is a, a point we can make too that, um, Modern life is, is, is sufficiently complicated that I actually kind of think there's a lot of hand-wringing about the extension of adolescence and we're stretching adolescence into the early 20s and stuff and people aren't adulting and this kind of stuff. And I kind of think uh, sort of appropriate. I mean, we're, I don't know that we're doing it well, right? We could structure it better and things like that. But, yeah. um, well, but I think like to be a modern 30-year-old uh, requires like, yeah, maybe seven more years of childhood but not childhood i mean that's i think that's the well, point like, I think that's yeah. interesting like in our social construct we have childhood and adulthood and like we have an adolescence but it's not functionally different in terms of rights or responsibilities or anything from childhood right like no, true. you're 16 i mean like yes you can get emancipated as a minor in a court case you're much more like likely to be able to at 16 than at like eight but still like in terms of voting and drinking and um, work and like, you know, your, your life is primarily about attending school. That's a childhood thing. Like there's no really like, you know, you don't, you can't vote, you can't drink, you can't join the military. Like, and then at 18, suddenly you can do all these things. So, I mean, I'm, I'm totally with you. I think, I think we need like the middle ages had a much more, um, designated period of adolescence especially for kind of wealthier families where like you know children stay home till they're seven or ten or twelve and then they go and they usually get sent away to be apprenticed in another household so they're getting that adult guidance whatever and you guess these things happen a bit younger than they do now but they have kind of a true adolescence which is marked by different rights and responsibilities and cultural possessions than childhood but also different kind of rights, responsibilities, cultural possessions, then kind of their adulthood. And, um, and one of the, you know, one of the big values of growing up at church for me was, I mean, just, you know, speaking of N of one, um, 
it but was was having relationships with adults who weren't my parents. Sure. Um, I mean, Robert Putnam talks about that, right? In his um, Bowling Alone article, like bowling alleys are one of the few places left in America where people regularly had interactions with those of a different age and often racial and economic background than themselves. And that doesn't really happen anymore. And churches were kind of one of the other places, but churches either like are in decline and also... Um, have like especially in evangelicals like more and more have modeled on like they have youth services they have family services they have senior services though admittedly i was having you know these relationships with adults who are my parents were people who volunteered to work the, with the youth group so you know how you hash these things out i don't take a sort of strong view on but i do think that um but it's 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 needful um and i think and i think it's the 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 relative complexity of modern life is, is part of that, right? That, that um, if we're going, especially if we're going to have uh, any kind of progress on, on um, diversity, pluralism, multicultural, et cetera, et cetera. Um, like, well, now you have the intersection of, uh, of a whole other set of, of cultural objects and subjects um, coming, you know, coming together across sort of otherwise, mm-hmm. Uh, social segregations um well that is going to require as we're discovering uh a, a higher a yet higher level of moral subtlety um and to be prepared for that like there's an actual process of development required um and so and and because the there are the well-being of persons at stake um showing up prepared is itself an uh, an act of irresponsibility and so a, a kind of moral failure um, now, admittedly, we don't want to be individualistic about that and all the asterisks you can put on it. But nonetheless, you know, I think there's um, there's a kind of high high calling uh, as far as that goes. Right. Well, and and then what you were saying too about like kind of the brain mean modeling that happens in adolescence and stuff. Like, this is not only kind of a, an abstracted reality, but one that actually kind of the, the type of formation receive actually has influence on our biology as well, which then in turn gives us the potentialities for, for future abilities and that sort of thing. So um, which is kind of what I wanted to hash out, like what, you know, this kind of, kind of like a theory of, of the ways in which you don't just have this biological ability or potentiality and then kind of cultural and then moral things abstracted, but the ways in which you have this reciprocal relationship. And I haven't really thought it through entirely, which is half the reason I brought it up here. No, sure. It's great. And I, it makes me want to go back and, and reread some stuff in the um, interpersonal neurobiology world. Um, but, uh, but that's maybe for another day. Um, well, thanks, guys. Uh, thanks for listening, you out there in podcast land. If you want to tweet at us, we're at SystematicPod on Twitter. If you want to send us an email. Uh, I don't think we've ever gotten an email. So if you guys want to send us an email, now's the time. You can be the first. Systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. We have a a Patreon. We've got a handful of folks who are helping us pay our our hosting fees and pay for our video conferencing software uh, and the subscription with that. And that's patreon.com slash systematically. Even just a buck a month would help. So thanks to you who are already doing that and to those who, uh, who decide they want to. Finally, our intro and outro music, as always, 
is track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nail. And uh, as you go into this week, be responsible. Bye, y'all.